Good morning to you all and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've decided uh, today to take another quick break from the book of James. We will finish James very shortly. But since it's Communion Sunday, I thought it might be good for us to go back to the Scriptures and see what the Lord and His apostles had to say about Holy Communion. Where did we get this sacrament of the church, and why is it considered a sacrament? What are we doing when we come to the Lord's table together? What do we receive when we come to the Lord's table? Are there restrictions concerning how and when communion should be taken? What do we believe as the Lutheran Church that might be different from what other denominations believe? There are all kinds of questions that can be asked about this subject. We read in our scripture reading this morning from Matthew 26, where Jesus met with his disciples in an upper room. They were all reclining at the table together, and Jesus told them that one of them would betray him. And this news was not taken very well by the disciples, as each one of them began to ask in turn if he were the one. Well, Jesus told them that the one who dipped his hand in the bowl with Jesus, meaning one who had eaten with him, one who had fellowshiped with him, would betray him. And then Judas asked Jesus, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, Yes, it is you. Now John's Gospel account gives us some more detail into this exchange between Judas and Jesus. It tells us that Jesus took some bread and dipped the bread into a dish and handed it to Judas. And we're told that as soon as Judas took that bread, that Satan entered into him. And Jesus, knowing what Judas was about to do, told him, what you are about to do, go and do quickly. And Judas went out to betray Jesus. Now this happened in John's Gospel after they had eaten the meal together and after Jesus had spent that time washing his disciples' feet. Going back to Matthew's Gospel that we read earlier, we're told that during the meal, Jesus took some bread, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it. He then gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Then it is from Luke's gospel, and actually Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, that we get the words of Jesus saying, Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Why don't we turn there together now? Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we get the Apostle Paul's most definitive teaching on this subject of Holy Communion. I invite you to take your Bibles and please stand with me as I read. I'm reading a little bit longer passage this morning, so bear with me, but we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17 and all the way down to the end of verse 34. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it begins on page 812. <clears throat> in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? 
or, you did, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we, judge our, if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Lord, the Apostle Paul was speaking to a specific church and specific things that were going on in that church. But we, Lord, can learn from this as well. So open your word to us today, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct my words and our thoughts today, Lord. And as always, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts together, would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, Paul begins this section of his letter with a very stern statement. He begins by telling them, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. And I think we can tell by his opening here that he's not pleased with something that is going on and that the church better pay really close attention to what he's going to say next. And he tells them, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, he says, I believe it. And in verse 19, he says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, if we go back to the beginning of the letter, we can see Paul uh, addressing the church and, and addressing those divisions where he says, some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. Some of you say, I follow Cephas. There was division. And Paul told them then, no, don't follow us. Follow Christ. He's the one you need to follow. So he says that there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And this verse has actually been taken two different ways by, by many of the commentators. Some say Paul is speaking sarcastically to the church, telling them that they are creating differences among themselves to try and prove to others who has God's approval, the implication then being that those who were more privileged supposedly were more approved by God. Others say that he's speaking very seriously to them and telling them that the differences among them actually did show who had God's approval, the implication being that whoever was showing true Christian love to his brothers and not creating division was the one who had God's approval. Either way, 
Paul is addressing the way the church is handling these differences among them. And you may be sitting here this morning wondering what all this has to do with Holy Communion. Well, we'll see that connection in just a little bit here. Paul gets to the point of contention in verses 20 through 22. And I want to give you a little historical background so we can better understand what Paul is saying here. The early church would get together for what were known as love feasts. We see this term mentioned in the, in the short letter from Jude. And these love feasts were similar to what we have today when we have potlucks at church, right? But while we have potlucks maybe two or three times a year, they would have these love feasts every week. And just like our potlucks, people would bring something to share with everybody else. The food would all be put together and people would either then come up and serve themselves or many times there were servants who would bring the food to them. Now the church back then didn't have buildings to worship in and to meet in like we do today, so they would meet in people's homes. And it was usually the home of someone who was more affluent that they would meet in, uh, simply because uh, the poorer people may not have had the room to accommodate a larger crowd of people. And I think it was also, in some ways, a point of pride for the richer people to be able to have everyone over so they could show off all that they had been blessed with. Now, this shouldn't have been a problem, but it was. Historians tell us that what would happen at these love feasts is that the more prominent people from the city who happened to be part of the church, they would get preferential treatment over those who were seen as the lower classes. And we need to realize that the culture back then was a very class-oriented culture. There was definitely an, an upper class, right? This higher echelon of people who were the wealthy ones, the ones who could afford to do anything that they wanted and oftentimes would flaunt their wealth for everyone to see. They were the ones that had these, these larger homes. Then there were the typical middle-class people, the shop owners, the, the farmers, the city employees, people who made a decent living but would never get enough to move up to that higher class of the rich. Then, like every society, there were the poorer people. Now, these weren't probably street people or even unemployed people, but they were the ones with the, with the lower-paying jobs who barely were able to make ends meet, barely able to keep food on the table for their families. And then, of course... There was also the servants, the slaves, who most of the time served who? Well, the elite, the upper class. Well, sadly, when the church would gather for these love feasts, this class system that was so ingrained in their culture, it would creep in as well. So the upper class people would always get the best seats in the house, and they would be served first. So the upper class people would, would always get preferential treatment. Then the middle class then the poorer people, and if there was any food left over, well, then the servants could eat. But the poorer people would be relegated to the outer parts of the home, and they weren't allowed to mingle or sit with those who were more privileged. And it was at these love feasts that they also would take the Lord's Supper together. So Paul begins to tell them in verse 20. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper when you gather together. In fact, you're not doing anything together as the body of Christ. Some of you go ahead and eat while others are going hungry. Some of you have already finished eating and you've had too much wine already even before the others have been fed. 
And again, history tells us that this is what was going on. The rich, privileged people would be served first. They would eat and drink, and some of them would have even had too much to drink before some of the others had even been served. This was not the kind of behavior that that Jesus had in mind when he had given his, his disciples a new commandment to love each other as he had loved them. And that through their love for each other, the world would know that they were his disciples. Paul was telling them, you're not acting any differently from the world around you. How are they going to know you belong to Christ if you're not loving your brother? And then Paul uses the rest of the passage to teach them what they were doing wrong and what was expected of them as they gathered together at the Lord's table. And he begins in verse 23 to tell them that the teaching he had passed on to them about the Lord's Supper, that these weren't his words, but they were what he had received from Jesus himself. And he had simply passed that teaching on to them. Again, going back to the beginning of the letter, we saw that some weren't recognizing Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ. They were doubting his apostleship. So he tells them right out, guys, this isn't my teaching. This comes straight from Jesus himself. So listen to what Jesus said. And then he shares with them the words of institution that Jesus spoke on the night of the Last Supper when he broke the bread and shared the cup with his disciples. These are the very same words we hear every time we come to the Lord's table together. Paul begins by telling them that this all happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And who was it again that betrayed Jesus? Was it someone from outside of his group? No, it was one of his own disciples. It was one whom Jesus had broken the loaf with, one whom he had shared the cup with. Now, did Jesus know that Judas was about to betray him? Yes, he did. But he still treated him the same as all the other disciples, offering him the bread, offering him the cup, just as he did for Peter, James, and John, and all of the others. He washed Judas' feet, as we saw in John's Gospel, just as he washed the feet of all the other disciples. So Paul may have been asking them, since Jesus didn't discriminate against Judas, even though he knew he was going to betray him, why are you so easily discriminating against your brothers? Paul reminds them that Jesus gave thanks for the meal and the wine before he shared them. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he told them, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Paul says, uh, Jesus took the cup and offered it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which which is shed um, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it again in remembrance of me. And he goes on to say, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I think Paul is is teaching them once again why they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I believe he's making two very important points here. The first point is that Jesus gave thanks to God before sharing this meal with his disciples. Jesus gave thanks. In many churches, the Lord's Supper is also called The Eucharist. How many of you have heard that term? Probably most of you. This is taken directly from this passage in the Greek, from the word that Paul uses here. The Greek word is a three-part word, eukurist. And it literally means 
the giving of thanks. Now it's taken on the meaning of celebrating the Lord's Supper, and whenever you see the word capitalized with that capital E, that's exactly what it's referring to. But in the original Greek, it meant simply the giving of thanks. Paul emphasizes this here because he's trying to teach the church that that when they gather together for the Lord's Supper, they are not truly giving thanks to the Lord for what He has done for them. Their attitudes are are not showing a true giving of thanks to God for Jesus' death on the cross, for their forgiveness, for their salvation. The only thing that they are seemingly thankful for are the material things that they have. And the Lord, and certainly not their brothers and sisters in Christ, they're not giving thanks for them. So he first emphasizes that they need to be truly thankful in their hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The second emphasis comes again from Jesus' own words that they are to remember Jesus and what he sacrificed for them as they celebrate together. Two times Jesus had said, do this in remembrance of me. But the celebration of the Lord's Supper, especially when it was done in conjunction with their love feasts, was not being done in remembrance of Christ. Because if they truly remembered what Christ had done for each and every one of them, then they wouldn't have treated each other so poorly. They would have realized that Jesus suffered and died just as much for the poorest of them as he did for the richest. Paul is telling them that for them to truly remember what Jesus has done, there should be no distinction between classes in the church because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come to the cross bent over by the weight of our sin. But Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he lifts us up, forgiven and justified. And it doesn't matter if we're rich or poor in the eyes of the world. When we have been forgiven through Christ, we are all rich with the blessings of God. So Paul tells them that by looking at Jesus' words of institution, they should be ashamed for how they were treating the sacrament of communion. And he tells them that whenever they do this, they are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. And again, I think he's telling them that the world around them is not seeing them, seeing any evidence of them proclaiming the Lord's death for their sins because they're not truly loving each other as Jesus had taught them. Then he reminds them that whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And the implication here is that by the way you've been celebrating church, this is what he's telling them, You're guilty of this. Now, some have taken this verse and have used it as an excuse to not come to communion, saying that they don't feel worthy to participate because of the sin in their lives. Let me tell you something. If that is your attitude, then you are way closer to the truth of the situation than the first century Corinthian church was. There didn't seem to be any remorse for their sin when they gathered to come to the Lord's table. But in truly remembering what Christ went through, we should all be very aware of our sin because it was my sin and your sin that helped nail him to the cross. So if we're honest with ourselves, none of us are worthy to come to the table, not on our own. Our sin prevents us from coming. However, that's why we celebrate 
That's why we remember. Because Jesus took all of our sin upon Himself when He gave of His body. When He shed His blood so that our sins could be forgiven. That's why we come to the Lord's table together to remember what Christ has done. To celebrate the forgiveness of sins and new life that we now have because God showed His grace to us. Because He has granted us faith through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm only going to touch on one more teaching from Paul from this passage. And that is when Paul says that each one who comes to the table should examine himself before he comes. This is why we always have that time of silent prayer during the communion service. To give everyone a chance to do just that. To ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anything that might keep them from coming and accepting the grace of God. The grace of God that we receive when we come to the communion table together. So Paul says that anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And for the Corinthian church, there were some who were already, very sadly, getting drunk on the wine even before everyone else had been served. And so when they came to the Lord's table, they were already hindered from totally recognizing the body and blood of the Lord in the elements. The body and blood of the Lord in the elements. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. How these statements are interpreted is where one of the main differences comes in in the way that different denominations perceive the bread and the cup. The Roman Catholic Church, some of you were raised Roman Catholic. They believe that the elements, the bread and the wine, through the prayer of the priest, actually change into the actual body and blood of Christ. This is called transubstantiation. So in the Catholic Church, the priest then believes he is offering up the body and blood of Christ as a sacrifice for all the sins of the people. See, but both Romans 6 and Hebrews 7 teach us that Christ died once for all, for all the sins of the world. So he doesn't need to be lifted up again as a sacrifice for sin. Now that's just a very, very quick summary of the Roman Catholic position. Most of the non-Lutheran Protestant churches hold to a more symbolic explanation of the sacrament of communion. They'll use the same elements that we use, but they take a position that is opposite that of the Roman Catholic Church. They see the elements as simply symbolizing the body and blood of Christ. The, the presence of Christ is not in or with the elements, so they are just a symbolic representation of the sacrifice that Jesus made. So we have the Catholic position here and we have the, most of the Protestant position here where well, the Lutheran position comes somewhere in between these two. We teach that the elements themselves do not go through a change like the Catholics believe. But we teach that the real presence of Christ is in, with, and under the elements. And through celebrating this sacrament, we receive the body and blood of Christ. Now this is a bit of a mystery, how this happens, I'll admit. But we believe that when we come to the Lord's table, Christ is present with us. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we meet Jesus Christ. 
So to us, the Lord's Supper is both a memorial feast and a sacrament. It is a means of God's grace to us, whereby God offers to us the forgiveness of sins. What were Jesus' words again? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. So what makes Holy Communion a sacrament of the church? As Lutherans, we teach that God brings his gift of forgiveness and salvation to us in what we call his means of grace. We teach that God's means of grace to us are God's holy word and the sacraments. And the two sacraments of the Lutheran church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now a sacrament is defined as a sacred act of God instituted or commanded by Christ himself in which visible elements are used and through which God offers his free gift of grace to us. Now the visible element in baptism is obviously the water. In the Lord's Supper, the visible elements are the bread and the cup. Through these sacraments, God comes to us individually and offers us his grace, his gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Through the sacraments, God's word comes to us in a very personal manner as well. This is why the word of God is also a means of God's grace. It is only through his holy word that we read of the importance of baptism and coming to the Lord's table together. So why do we celebrate this sacrament of the church? We believe that God's free gift of forgiveness, life, and salvation is offered to those who partake of this sacrament. God offers us assurance of the forgiveness of all of our sins through receiving the body and blood of his Son. The Lord's Supper is given to us to be a source of strength and encouragement in the Christian life. It's also a vivid reminder to us that that Jesus offered up his sinless life as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that through faith in his finished work, we could be saved. And the Lord's Supper is intended for those who are truly saved, for those who have been saved through faith in Christ. Those who are children of God receive forgiveness of sins and are strengthened to live for Christ through the partaking of this sacrament as we worship together as his holy church. And as we then follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in showing the love of Christ to those in our lives. Jesus said simply, do this in remembrance of me. And he was referring in that verse to coming to the Lord's table together. But in reality, all that we do in our lives is done and should be done in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. So as we prepare our hearts this morning to come to the Lord's table together and receive the grace of God, through this sacrament, let us remember what Jesus went through for us in giving of himself so that we could be saved.